You know, um, Cindy, the one with the stripes. <laughs> last time I saw her, well, I saw her at the 9.30 service, but previous to today, the last time I saw her, she had on all green, the mask on her face, and her hair all covered, and she was a surgical nurse going into surgery with Martha. And in there, another member of Trinity, surgeon member of Trinity, all through that hospital, like all through hospitals throughout this city, you doing the work of the Lord, helping, encouraging, and ministering to other people. I tell you, you're an incredible group of people. You really are. And I thought, as Cindy was saying this morning, and the difference between church work and the work of the church. Church work is what we do down here. And that's important and essential. It's very necessary. You can't get along without it. But the work of the church is what all of you do all week. As you go into your business and school and home and classroom, operating room, wherever it might be, and there translate your Christian commitment into those practical deeds of help and encouragement to others. That's the work of the church. You take God's people out of a community, and I tell you, you take its heart out. I thank God for you and for the ministry you are to other people and for the ministry you are to each other and the ministry you are to me. That's what it means to be saved. We sang about it a moment ago, and so often we think of saved as something that happens to us when we die. Well, surely that's something that is going to happen to us when we die, if we've trusted the Lord. But the Lord wants to do more than save us when we die. He wants to save us while we're living. He wants to save our Mondays and our Tuesdays. He wants to save everything about life. So often we limit salvation to the end of life. Life begins being saved the moment you put your faith and trust in the Lord. And there's no other way for life to work out right. Not only is there no other way for eternity to work out right, there's no other way for Monday to work out right without the Lord in our hearts and in our lives. So the salvation he gives to us is all so pervasive, so penetrating. It, it infiltrates into every area of life. And that's what Jesus Christ wants to do for me and for you here today. He wants to save us. All that part of us that has yet to be saved, maybe our spirits or our attitudes, our relationships, our priorities, all of those things the Lord wants to get control of. He wants to really help us get life together. That's what I want to talk about for a few moments this morning, and I want to use the, as the basis of this message a large portion of the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Now, I'm not going to read it. We don't have time to read all of it, but I hope you will read it because in the 18th chapter, you find some fascinating things happening. We have time to only touch upon a few, but you find some remarkable events taking place as Jesus encounters people and people encounter Jesus. Jesus tells this story beginning in the ninth, chapter, the ninth verse of the 18th chapter of Luke about two guys who go to church. Two people go to church, go up to the church to pray. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Here, a couple of people, like we came in here today, come into the church to pray. Two people went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, what is a Pharisee? 
You hear that word so often. A Pharisee is someone who is not only concerned about his own self-righteousness, preoccupied with himself in what he can do religiously to impress God and to impress other people. A Pharisee is not only someone who is hooked upon personal self-righteousness, but there's something that goes with that. In their desire to be self-righteous, they find it essential to find something wrong with everybody else. And if they can find something wrong with everybody else, then that makes them feel more self-righteous. That affirms and confirms their own self-righteousness. So here's this Pharisee. He comes into church to pray, and all he can pray about is himself. In fact, that's what the Scripture says. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. I thank God that I'm not like all other men. Robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. Those were three things he didn't do. <laughs> Unfortunately, he stopped before he got to himself. I thank God that I'm not like all other men. Robbers, evildoers, and adulterers or even like this tax collector. Tax collector. Well, now, it's hard for us to understand why tax collectors were so despised. You can see why they were disliked, but you, you need to understand why they were despised. Because to be a tax collector, you not only had to take people's money from them, but you had to have sold out to the Roman invaders. Because for a Jew to be a tax collector, he had to make a deal with the Roman occupying force in Palestine, and so he was not only taking money from God's people, he had betrayed God's people. He'd sold them out. And so the religious people of the day despised and detested these tax collectors. Well, here's this tax collector. It's a miracle to me he even got in church. But there he was. This guy looking at him said, I thank you, I'm not like the tax collector. He should have been like the tax collector. The tax collector stood at a distance. I don't blame him for that. Get as far away from Pharisees as you can. He stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. My friend, I don't know how you came in here in terms of attitude, but I want to say a word about how all of us came in here spiritually, morally. Every one of us came in here as sinners. There's not a saint in the bunch. Not one. All have sinned. Now, when we use that word, most people think of a gross list of immoralities, like the Pharisee. Robbing, stealing, adultery, surely those things are sins. But it doesn't stop there. The list goes on. It includes our attitudes, our relationships. It also includes the things we do not do. The things, the good we ought to, to do. The word we ought to say. The help that we ought to give. And we don't give it. You know, way back there in the early days of Christianity, they didn't have a lot of Bibles. Everybody couldn't read the Bible for themselves, 
and apply it to themselves because they were too rare, they were too expensive. And so the leaders of the church that had Bibles, they said, well, since everybody cannot have a copy of their own Scripture, we need to at least give everybody a list of the no's, a list of the things they ought not to do. So the church fathers got together. This is exactly what happened, but I'm modernizing it a little bit, but this is exactly what happened. They all got together and they said, okay, let's classify the sins. Classify the sins. Let's begin with the uh, little lightweight sins down here. And then we'll move up to middleweight and welterweight sins. And then we'll move on up to the heavyweight sins. And we'll work up this list of things that you are not to do. The mortal sins, the venal sins, lightweight sins, heavyweight sins. And then they got to the top of the list and they came up with seven, what? Deadly, right. Be awake out there. You're going to be tested on this. <laughs> seven, what? Deadly sins. I mean, these are killers. These sins will not just hurt you like the others in varying degrees. They will not just hurt you. They will do you in seven deadly sins. One of them that happened to slip in there, smart that it was there, unfortunate the way it has been translated and interpreted. The sin of Akkadia. Akkadia, that doesn't mean a thing in the world of it's a Greek word that was translated. It's a great word, but it was a terrible translation. They translated it sloth. Sloth. Now, when you hear the word sloth, what do you think of? You think of an animal, don't you? One of those animals down in Australia or South America somewhere. <laughs> Hardly move. We think of lazy, inactive, lounging around doing nothing. That is not, that's what sloth means. That's not what akadia means. The word means not caring. Not caring. No Compassion, Akadia. And my friends, that is a killer. And it's what happened to that Pharisee. He had no feeling for the tax collector, no feeling for his own spiritual needs. Now you can be as religious as that Pharisee and it will not, listen, religion will not change your life or alter God's attitude. Not a bit. My, I wish we could believe that. Religion never changed anybody's attitude. It may have forced a temporary change in your behavior, but it doesn't change your attitude, nor does it change the attitude of God. We don't influence God by being religious. You can't influence Him to be more loving than He already is more compassionate than he already is. You can't get more love out of God by being more religious. So religion isn't the way to get life to work. Religion is not the way to salvation. Well then, move on to that next story. 
bunch of people were bringing children to Jesus. And the disciples said, wait a minute, get those kids out of here. We don't want that. Jesus said, stop a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let those little children come. In fact, you better get like those little children unless you become like a little child. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what Jesus is saying to us there among many things? He is communicating to us the truth that your wisdom will not save you. Making a difference how much of an adult you can be, how much information you can amass. Wisdom will not save you. It will not change your behavior, your attitude. Wisdom will not alter your spirit. Oh, it's a wonderful thing to have. We all need more learning. We all need to understand more about life, about ourselves and about the world around us. But we will never get life together just by amassing information. Never. In fact, we worship information in our day. It has become almost a god. We're addicted to information. And the more we get, the more confused we are. Great to have as a tool, impossible to use as a motivation for change in the human heart and the human life. Will Rogers said we're all ignorant just on different subjects anyway. Making a difference how much information you can accumulate in the mass. It won't work in the sense that it will save your soul. It won't save you. It won't save you. Then the next story is a remarkable story of the rich young ruler, beginning in the 18th verse. Here this young man came, rich, young, powerful. I mean, that's the modern trinity, isn't it? I mean, you look to America today, and you ask people, what do they want? Well, well, they want to be young, and they pretend that even if they're not, we want to be young, and we want to have money, and we want to have power. That's the modern trinity. Well, this guy had it. Well, if he had it, why did he come to Jesus looking for life? I mean, if he had what all of us are looking for and many people are worshiping, why was he still empty? His very request is a confession of the emptiness of his acquisition. Young, powerful, wealthy, empty. What must I do, he said, to find life? Well, most of the people looking at him think he had it all together. Man, you've got life. No, I'm living. I've got a good living. I'm making a good living, but I'm not doing anything about making a good life. Help me. Help me. I heard this story about a week ago. Dr. Clovis Chapel, one of the great preachers of America. He, uh, more preachers in America have read Clovis Chapel probably than any other, any other preacher. He was a marvelous man. Never knew him, but I've read his books. And he spoke at Hardin-Simmons University once, after he was 70 years of age, to a compulsory chapel. How many of you went to a school where you had compulsory chapel? May I see your hand? I did. Boy, I tell you. And in compulsory chapel, when I was there at Baylor, everybody would go in, they'd sit down, they'd open up the school paper, and they'd start reading it. Uh, they'd open up the notes for the next class or the book they had. How many of you did that? Go ahead. It's all right. You can confess it here. How many of you did that? Okay. If you went to Baylor, you did that. I saw you. 
Well, that's true wherever they have compulsory chapels. So I'm not being critical of Hardin Simmons University. I'm just telling you how students are, wherever you find them. Here, Clovis Chapel was to speak to the compulsory chapel at Hardin Simmons University. They introduced him with all of his attainments and accomplishments. And he stood up there, and there wasn't a person looking at him. They're all lounging there reading the paper and reading their books. So Clovis Chapel just stood there. One by one, they began to look up. The silence was killing them. <laughs> they started folding up their papers, and he just stood there. Ten minutes. I'd kill a Baptist. <laughs> that place was about to explode with silence. Their eyes just riveted on him. And he finally said in a kind of raspy voice that I understand he had, I know what you students are thinking. You're wondering what an old codger has got to say to you. He said, well, I have a few things to say to you. First, I want you to know that I would not be as young and as dumb as you for all the tea in China. <laughs> and they gave him a standing ovation. <laughs> when they sat down, he said, now I have a couple more things I want to say to you. You can be young, you can be powerful, you can have money and be empty lost. He was. And then we come to a story of a man who was empty and broke and lost and nameless. His name, well, we don't know his first name. They gave him a nickname. You read about him in the concluding verses of the 18th chapter of Luke. His name was Bartimaeus. He said, that's his name. No, that's his father's name. Bar in Hebrew means son, son of Timaeus. We don't know what his first name was, whether it was Abraham or Aaron or Moshe or whatever. We don't know. They gave him a name. This friendless, hopeless, penniless, blind beggar named Bartimaeus was nicknamed what else? Blind. That was his name. Blind is his first name. Bar, son, Timaeus, his father. Blind, son of Timaeus. Didn't even have a name. Jesus came to Jericho and Bar, Timaeus, sitting outside the city limits of Jericho, begging a few coins, heard the crowd coming. When the crowd got opposite him, he asked somebody, who is it, who is it? Somebody said, it's Jesus, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He'd heard about him. That's all. Not one of you here this morning under the sound of my voice that doesn't know more about Jesus than blind son of Timaeus knew. Not one of us here that doesn't know more about him, have more information about him, more acquaintance with the Scripture than he had. He didn't know anything but the fact that he had heard that Jesus helped blind people and that he was blind. 
That's all he knew. And out of that slim knowledge, he cried out, Jesus! In fact, the word used there is not just a cry like you would call somebody. It is the cry of desperation. It is the cry of a drowning man. Jesus, help me! And everybody said, shut up. Be quiet. My soul, you're embarrassing our city. He didn't care. What's a blind man without any friends or money going to do anyway? He didn't have anything left to lose. He cried just that much more. Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And the scripture says, Jesus stopped. Doesn't that do something to you? Think about it. The eternal God of the ages, the one by whom all the worlds were made, who created time and space, who set the planets in motion, from whose fingertips dripped the stars, he stopped. Stopped. God stopped. when a blind, penniless beggar called his name. That's good news. I mean, that's good news. The cry of a desperate man stops the God of the universe in his tracks, and he says, come here. Bring him here. Bring him here. And when he got there, Jesus said, what do you want? You've got that picture in your mind, don't you? That crowd that parted to let him walk through, and here's Jesus. And here's old blind Timaeus, son of Timaeus. And Jesus said, what do you want? And he said, if you didn't know the story, what does logic Suggests that he would ask for. What would a beggar ask for? What was a beggar asking for? Money, money, money. Something happened inside that man, and he knew that what he wanted was not really what he needed. And he didn't ask for a dime. He said, Lord, that I might see. That I might see. Oh, would to God you and I would quit asking for money. That's what we get. If the blind beggar had asked for money, I think Jesus would probably have given him money. And do you know where Bartimaeus would have been the next day? Right back where he was, begging, hoping for a little more because you never get enough, do you? Never get enough. 
If that's what your primary motive in life is, you never get enough. He didn't ask for money. He said, oh, Lord, that I might see. Oh, God, help us to see so we get our priorities straight, our values straight, our living straight. And Bartimaeus was so excited about this new sight that he went off and left his old coat there beside the road. That's the only coat he had. And he gets cold at night in the desert. You see, the coat became unimportant when he began to see things in God's eyes. And when that happened, he knew he could get more coats. He knew he could get more coats. He had something that a closet full of coats could not provide. He could see. He could see. Oh, may every one of us today pray, God, help us to get your way of seeing things, your values, your priorities. May we not be hooked on coins and coats and things. May we distinguish between Jesus and Santa Claus. May we ask for the things we really need, not just childish wants. Oh, God, that I might see. You know what Jesus said? See. You got it. Receive your sight, your faith. Faith? Faith, that guy didn't know anything. He hadn't been to Sunday school. He hadn't grown up in a Christian home. He didn't own the Bible. He didn't know about any of the Miracles in the life of Jesus. He didn't know about his miraculous birth. He didn't know any of that. How much faith could he have? My friend, all the faith you need is faith enough to call upon him and say, Lord, save me. That's all the faith you need. Just a little bit of faith. Not a bushel of it, not a pound of it, not a ton of it. A mustard seed. That's all it takes. Mustard seed. Because faith like hope, lives on a very, very, very slim diet. Let me tell you something I heard this a week or so ago. Dr. Fred Craddock is professor of homiletics or preaching at Emory University in Atlanta. And I heard a tape of one of his messages at a conference he told a story that really, it helped me. And maybe it will help you. I want you to picture a waiting room outside the surgical suite at a hospital. Most of us have been there, some of us many times. Waiting room, you got the scene? Waiting room, outside surgery, in a big hospital. Bunch of dog-eared magazines lying around all over the place, you know, from 1966. <laughs> Plastic cups scattered around everywhere. Cigarettes and ashtrays all over. number of people in there waiting. 
One group, a father and his children. Obviously, the mother was in surgery. The door opens, and in walks this green-clad figure, the doctor. Cap on, pull the mask down. The father quickly moves over there to him. You've done it. You've been there. You've seen it. And the children come kind of gather around. And the doctor said, we think we got it all. We think we got it all. Father kind of smiles, looks at his children, and says, let's go eat breakfast. Go eat breakfast on that? We think we got it all? You go eat on that? You go eat on that. That's all the hope you get. And that's all the faith you need. It never comes in bushels. It comes in mustard seed quantities. You say, how can I believe that? Because the one you trust went on less. Look at him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, threw himself on the ground. It's a violent word. He threw himself on the ground. His friends in the distance asleep, and he clawing at that dirt, praying, Father, Father, if it be possible, let the cup pass. And what does he hear? Nothing. At his baptism, God spoke. This is my son. At his transfiguration, God spoke. This is my son. At his Gethsemane, No sound. You get no sound. I get no sound. You don't hope on sound. You don't believe in sound. With Job you say, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, and I will get up and go eat breakfast because I believe him, and he said that through him I would be more than a conqueror. My friends, you can believe him because he got it all. Every bit of it. Into his own body, on that cross, he took all our sins. And he killed death. He didn't die. Death died. 
And because he got it all in silent waiting rooms and long sleepless nights, I believe him. And he is with us. Faith and hope live on a very slim diet. But listen to me. They live. They live. Why don't you call upon him? You'll live. He will hear you. Why don't you call upon him and trust him? He'll come into your life. He'll give you sight and peace. Oh, you won't hear any thunder. No voice will speak. But a little mustard seed will be planted in your heart. It'll sprout. It'll sprout. It'll give life, and it will be the promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Why don't you do it? Some of you are Christians. You've been coming to church here for weeks or months. You've been thinking about joining this church. Why don't you do it this morning? Why don't you say, Buckner, I want to be a part of Trinity. If you have some questions about some things, we'll answer those. We want you, and we invite you. Maybe some to come and rededication of your life. Come on, do it. If God is impressing you, there's a reason for it. And it's for your good and for the help of other people and for the glory of God. Why don't you do it? We're going to sing just as I am without one plea. Like Bartimaeus, we cry. But that thy blood was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Do it. Stand.